welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, it's Katie Lazarus. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. On this episode, I have Ophira Eisenberg on. It was so fun to talk to a comedian who I admire and have so much affection for and respect for. When people outside of the business are like, oh, it's so hard, or you're so brave, or admire you, or respect you, all I think is like, oh, okay, they don't think I'm funny. I got it. I got it. I got it. You don't think I'm funny. But it's a whole different thing when you are with a fellow comedian and know how hard it is. (laughs) And it's not that it's the audience heckling or the potential that they may heckle that's hard, or the fact that writing new material all the time is hard, or hustling between gigs, and I mean hustling because you've got to get to a spot at 9.30 uptown and you've got another one downtown and neither pays enough for you to be able to take a cab, um, and, but there's 10 minutes in between them and one show goes over. That, that stuff is, is nothing, and I think what's hard is... Being on the road gets really lonely and being at Uncle Chuckles but being told you're not fuckable enough or uh, getting passed at a club like the Comic Strip or Gotham or the Comedy Cellar and then that booker leaves and you got to start all over again. That's the stuff that I mean is is really hard, the business of it. The biggest thrill is getting on stage. Uh, it is such a high and then to give someone else a high in the audience because they love what you're saying is so intoxicating. But I'd say like the other component of that, the one that's just as sweet is when other comedians think you're funny. It feels so good. So Ophira is an excellent stand-up. You've seen her on Ferguson um, or Comedy Central. She's also a magnificent storyteller and somehow she managed to break into what is a very erudite storytelling world the moth uh she's one of their few hosts and they really nurture their the hosts that they they like the storytellers they like and, and they help them um host shows and i just can't articulate how wonderful the moth is they have programs in schools they have these slams and that's what ophira hosts for them in addition to doing their main stage productions go to a slam go to watch it go to tell i really love being part of the storytelling community it's where i came after stand-up uh it's where i will remain for the rest of my life Ophira hosts Ask Me Another on NPR, which is a quiz show. It's sort of the cool nerd show, but the thing is, anytime someone uses the word nerd, I know that they're really cool and they're using that to seem like they're a nerd, but they're not. If you were really nerdy, you'd be like, I'm so cool at badminton, and then we'd know you're a total dork. Or I'm so cool at algebra, I'm like the coolest algebra solver you've ever seen. That's what it means to be a nerd. That's, that's what would happen uh, if you were a nerd. Uh, she has a new book out. Um, screw everyone, which is not a rant about how horrible the Hollywood industry is. It is about screwing everyone. It's a lot of fun. I was shocked at how well written it is. Check out our interview to just get a, a glimpse into what I'm talking about in five, four, three, and two, and one, and stretch, and then take it all in. Here's my interview with Ophira Eisenberg. I'm here with Ophira Eisenberg. I'm so grateful and excited to have her on the show. Thank you to the Writers Guild who are letting us tape live. If you hear, if, live, excuse me, if you if they're letting us record here, I'm just learning English. Um, <laughs> well, we are live, so it, make, it does make sense. We are live. Yeah, we're super live. We're super live, which is not the case for most writers, so that's also, we're adding a birth of fresh air into this office. Um, and if you hear any moaning or anything, it's just uh, writers. 
It's just writers trying to do a rewrite. <laughs> Seventh rewrite. Oh. Um, Ophira Eisenberg is a phenomenal stand-up comedian. She's been on everything from Craig Ferguson to VH1 to Comedy Central. She had her own album on Live at Comics. New York Magazine rated her one of the top ten New York comedians, excuse me, one of the top ten comedians in the world. I don't want to just say New York comedians. <laughs> I, I like great. that. I don't think that's true, but I like it. <laughs> it's, an, it's, it's a magazine you can buy everywhere, and they were rating uh, comedians everywhere. Um, she is also the host of Ask Me Another on NPR, which is also syndicated nationally, and uh, you can download that or just listen to it live, and it will be live. And she's now the author of Screw Everyone, <laughs> Sleeping My Way to Monogamy by Seal Press. Ophira, after all of these amazing awards, <laughs> what, yeah. is it, what is it like to win the Employee of the Month award? It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, it's, everything just happened at once, you know? It really did. I was doing nothing in obscurity, and then all of a sudden, Employee of the Month award. Just working, yeah. And that's usually how it happens, I find, with comedy it's it's an overnight you're an overnight success yeah i mean this if what i with the exception of the over the employee of the month award uh everything feels very schizophrenic because uh my friend susan preckle said it best and i'm going to quote her perfectly that in most comedy clubs if you go npr people are like is that an std they have no, no idea. idea what you're saying when you say you have a show on npr they have no so... idea and then the npr audience the idea of them going to a stand-up club and seeing that like you know that real working in the trenches thing that, yes. that is like they would never be caught dead there and they that's fine it's very different uh, uh, things absolutely going on different worlds that I feel like you've bridged and I, I actually would love to talk to you about that because I you're well, and then you talked about Susan Preckle, and she has one of the funniest jokes. Uh, she has this joke where she talks about growing up and the women wore um, Ann Taylor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talbots. 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 They wear Talbots, and she's a, it's a great, great outfit if you want your husband to cheat on you. I hope I'm not <laughs> that's, messing that's, it ba- up. that's basically perfect. That is basically perfect, yeah. <laughs> but she's just so funny. Yeah, that Midwest uh, mentality, <laughs> which actually is very similar to a Canadian mentality, just yes. minus the money. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> well, 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 tell me about the money because I, I'm so fascinated. You're, you're Dutch, Israeli, and Canadian. Yeah. Which is a, a very funny What a mess. But you got all the positive qualities of each culture. You just have to tell me which qualities but, are positive. <laughs> which ones, which ones <laughs> that worked for you? Uh, well, the Dutch thing, what did I get from the Dutch side? Sarcasm. Because <laughs> the Dutch are very, very sarcastic. They actually do not understand. If you say to a Dutch person who speaks, you know, Dutch obviously lives in Holland, blah, 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 surrounded by that culture, and you say, that is very sarcastic, they're confused because actually everything they say is sarcastic. So they don't actually understand a separate idea of sarcastic because the entire way they (laughs) talk to you is on, like the idea of going like, what, you thought you were good enough? Like that is a perfectly legitimate, (laughs) nice thing to say. I can relate. I like these people yeah, already. Which they're I, all tall and attractive. They're very tall and attractive. Uh, the uh, the Jewish side, and of course, my father grew up in Israel before it was Israel. In Palestine. In Palestine. Yeah. Or sort of Palestine. No, no, definitely Palestine. Yeah. Let's not forget so. the English. I feel like the English get away with this whole thing scot-free. And they are the ones who came in and colonized. That's right. That's right. So they left, actually, right around the war of, one of the wars of independence, kind of, you know, went on. Uh, because my mother was like, I'm sick of wars. So. What, a, what an odd thought. I mean, that's, I love you, you care, in your book, you so expertly describe as if she's like, oh, you know, describing something nonchalant. So like, nonchalant. Oh, I'm so sick of the, you know, hurricanes. 
You know, she said something to me. She's now 83. She said something to me about four years ago. I don't know why. I don't know why we were talking about this. I think it was because, well, America's at war, obviously, uh, and we were. And I live in America now, so we talk about this more often. And she said it only occurred to me very recently that while I was living in war-torn Holland and they were bombing my town, people my age in Canada were going to dances. And I was just like, oh, you, you, like you. I, I mean, that she thought because she was 16 that the whole world was experiencing what she was experiencing. Yes. yes. But she, you know, that's just perspective. That but is perspective. It, it is so shameful. Like my brother is a peace activist in the Middle East, and he brought all of these kids. They all wanted to come see um, the 9/11 memorial. Yeah. And like, here are these kids from Palestine and Israel, and you know, who live in internment camps. Internment camps. Excuse me. They live. I, make sure we do not get a letters in. I did not mean to say internment <laughs> camps. They live in sort of subsidized housing and yes. temporary housing units. You're very poor. I really want to make sure I did not uh, confuse confuse this. But um, they were so humble and thoughtful and empathetic about what had gone on in our country. And I just yeah. felt a, a sense of shame because totally. we, we, don't, we don't share that for them. You know, like... No, it's like a YouTube video. We're like, let's write a nasty comment. I mean, it's (laughs) so ridiculous. I was so embarrassed to have them be so sweet. And I was like, I just wish that, like, we ever reciprocated that. And unfortunately, as a culture, we don't because we get to go to dances like... Yeah, and so it's all cool. But I think because I always... I always wonder about to the extent, because it's hard to analyze your own life, although writing a memoir really pushes you to the test. (laughs) Uh, But just what an old-fashioned mentality I grew up with that is is pretty rare amongst my friends, because most of my friends' parents were much younger and had a very different, like, grew up in the, you know, 60s or 50s or, you know, so... Because because your parents had so many kids. They had so many kids. How many was it? Six. Six. It's It's a a lot of kids. But it seems so un-Israeli and un-Dutch to me. I know. I think it was just moving around with no birth control. And they were obviously happily married for for, for that part. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I (laughs) kind of came in the end of it. (laughs) But how many years between you and your oldest? Oh, that's a good question. I always work this out and then I forget. Hang on, let me think about this. It's 25, roughly? 25 years. Yeah. So technically your oldest sibling could have been your parent. Oh, my oldest sibling has two daughters that are much older than me. One of them is almost exactly my age, and the other one is quite a bit older than me. And they, and then my next brother has kids that are just younger than me, and they have kids. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So which... There's just people making making people <laughs> machines. <laughs> Do you feel like, okay, they've taken care of it, and therefore I don't have to have kids, that they have enough kids? Well, you know, that uh, you get to a certain age where a lot of people ask you that. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm already, okay. First of all, I already said did, your parents must have had a happy marriage because they had sex six times. I know, that's right. but that's which, so which funny is because so far it never occurred to me that that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I grew up, I wouldn't say they had an unhappy marriage, but they... They didn't. I never saw them hold hands. I will say that. So far, let's say I've talked about internment camps that don't exist. <laughs> I presumed your parents had a happy marriage merely by the. I hope they, they had a happy marriage. I don't think it was a happy marriage. Yeah. I think it was. I think by the time I came along, it was a very workable marriage. Okay. You okay. know, uh, but then yeah. So the kids thing, I, there is a level, but there was no pressure on me ever. That is true. I mean, I made some very specific decisions with my life, but no one in my family ever put one second of pressure on me for kids because there were just either. a billion of them already. <laughs> that that already existed. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel that way too? Work wise, did you feel pressure to 
uh, become a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that or take over the, the family business? Nothing. Okay. Matter of fact, to the point where I don't remember anyone even looking at my report card. Yes. I mean, I could make the uh, the case for neglect. Do you hear that, family? <laughs> you never oh. cared. Okay, so how? Okay, because I feel the same way, and I can't tell how much is just cultural of the era that we grew up in. in Maybe which parenting was such an, a hands off. I remember telling my dad it wasn't. I was a teenager, and I was very into my angst, and I was like, "You weren't emotionally available for me when I was young." And he's like, "You should have let me know." And I was like, "I was four. Like, what do you mean? I was like, <laughs> like, what am shoes. I supposed to send you a letter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm drooling." But at the same time, like, I do think there's something to be said that era-wise, he w- he would blatantly say, "Like, I didn't know I was supposed to take care of the kids." Yeah, like, I think you know, obviously, when I was born, it was way late in the game too. So I think. My parents were exhausted. Yes. I think they were exhausted. I think they, and I think because it was such a, not a touchy-feely, like, you know, whatever, program your kids. I got ballet lessons, which was a huge deal, because that meant they had enough money to send a kid to ballet lessons. And for the younger ones, they didn't have that. I mean, sorry. They didn't have that. Yeah, they didn't have that. And so the general feeling was like, hey, you're alive and you look like your hair's washed. Like, we're good. Yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. But no one ever sat down to me and going, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, it was sort of like, I was like, ballerina, princess. Right, (laughs) right. And then life happened. (laughs) And my mother did really want me to go to university. She she did press She did want to go to university, but it was based on a very, like, kind of immigrant mentality of, like, whatever happens in university, you'll be able to make a life for yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and now that's also different. Now people don't. Go, oh, totally. Go, people are go, dropping go. out left, right, and yeah. center because they're like, you see the guy who did Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally. I'm probably yeah. just as smart as he is. Yeah. And, and they don't like consider any of the other factors that uh, he was from money. He, I mean, so he has a cushion to fall back. Right, right. Needs. No, everyone's just dropping out to take improv classes. <laughs> <laughs> so amazing, Sad. isn't it? Good luck, world. I also <laughs> like describing improv to people. <laughs> who have nothing to do with the theater or art world, and they're like, wait, I don't understand. So if someone pays $400 <laughs> to take a class to say yes and and just be comfortable in their own skin, and like, I'm like, yeah, I don't get it either. Yeah, and then they take that class, and they were like, you know, I was really good, and I learned a lot. <laughs> it's a little, little like bit. self-publishing classes where there's no one who says in the class, like, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that, I mean, that is like sort of the beauty. That is the world we live in, though, because of the internet and everything. Everything is... And we were just talking about how much we love Maria Bamford's yes. comedy special, oh, which there you go, all right, so there's someone who did it totally on their own terms. Absolutely. And how great is that? But, you know, if 2,000 people also decide to do that, no, maybe not. Like, I'm yes. not going to say any of that's going to be worth watching. Yes, yeah, and it's all subjective, ultimately. Right, right, right. Okay. Oh, God, it's so subjective. <laughs> Wait, so tell me, okay, in Canada, you were very successful as a com- comedian. Did you, like, when did you start to go into stand-up? How did you go into stand-up? When did you go into stand-up? Yeah, it was, it was a long uh, process. Okay. I mean, I am a, both a late process process. <laughs> and Canadian, we say it the other way. Um... I think I'm a late bloomer or something. Whatever. It, some people, I, I think I really took the, a long route between A and B, but whatever. That's I started the way at 27, so. So I, so I finished <laughs> I college. I understand late blooming. Yeah, I I'm finished. I'm hoping co- to lose my virginity any day now. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I get off the Accutane, you'll see. Everything's going to turn around. <laughs> so I, I finished university. I moved to Vancouver. I was really just doing nothing. I don't know what I was doing. I was. 
And some and somehow money I was working, I had to pay for myself, but it wasn't yeah. that big of an issue. Yes. I would love to remember why that was. I, I would like to hit myself on the head every day. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was just like finances. it was easier. I, I guess I was just not cost of living was down and I didn't have a lot of yeah. requirements. Expenses. Yeah. So then um, I actually I volunteered, I decided I was I needed to do something. I had a job at Kinkos. Nice. Which I thought was an awesome job. I love that, though. What were you doing there? I was working in their computer lab, like helping people with their computers. So you've always been computer savvy. <laughs> well, I, I started in, at McGill. I worked, I have always worked. I worked at the computer lab at McGill and the arts center because I didn't have a computer. McGill so, is, is one of the finest universities in Canada. Yeah, although if you're taking a cultural anthropology degree, just take it anywhere. You don't have okay. to go to the finest <laughs> university. But is that I, where you were doing cultural yeah, anthropology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the gift was living in Montreal. And McGill is amazing, and I felt like such an idiot there, so it was good. I really had to work very hard. Yes. Uh, but I didn't have a computer, so I thought, oh, I should get a job. And I didn't want to pay for the computer lab, so I was like, I'll just get a job there. But this is back in the day when we didn't own our own computers. No, I didn't. Some people did, but just I, di starting. I didn't. Just yeah, starting. yeah, and I couldn't afford it, so it was just like, okay, I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to work there. I didn't know a lot, but I wanted to learn, and as I like to say, I am IT pretty. So a lot of the guys like would help me. I like IT Yeah, but you actually so, learned then from them. I you, did learn. You yeah, I was interested. Advantage. I was interested enough to learn. So then I had a little bit of skills, and back then a little bit of skills went a long way. So then, but in Montreal, because it was French Canada, there was no such thing as Kinko's, like that idea of going somewhere and having, so I envisioned this business and I thought it was genius. I'm like, I'm gonna open up a place where you can like do your college papers at any time in the middle of the night, and blah, blah, blah. And then I moved to Vancouver and I was like, there it is, my <laughs> dream. Someone had already swept yeah. in. And I was like, I'm gonna work there, <laughs> thinking like, you know, I'm building on something little did I know it's like the you know somewhat the equivalent of like Dunkin Donuts <laughs> you'll see I'll be a night manager you know it was like setting the bar low a little bit just so you know Dunkin Donuts one brother did Dunkin Donuts and the other brother did Winchell's and they are were, you serious yeah, I didn't there know were, that there were two donut stores and then uh -oh. the Dunkin guys succeeded on a bigger scale. Well, it's hard to but know what siblings. windshields should, would sell. You had to have an, a twin or something who was also competitive with you right. and wanted to create you know, an up-all-night computer lab. That's right. You need a twin to compete with. Yeah, that's so that's, that was the reason you weren't able to. That's the only reason Kinko succeeded and, and you abandoned that route. <laughs> that's the only reason. <laughs> Nothing else. You had all your ducks in a row. <laughs> not your artistic integrity, not your creativity. <laughs> But I was working at Kiko's just going nowhere for a while. I think I liked it. And then yeah. I was sort of considering grad school. I didn't really know what I was up against. As opposed to all the other people at Kinko's who were going somewhere. Yeah, they were doing great. <laughs> they had big plans. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it had it employed a certain subsection of people that were figuring their, their selves yeah. out or had nothing left. Yes, right. They, <laughs> we fall like, into two camps. That's exactly yeah. how I meet at temp jobs. Totally. Kinko's, yes. So I, uh, I volunteered for the comedy festival. The oh, wow, as a Vancouver comedy Yeah, festival. yeah, as okay. a, like a usher. Very neat. But other, turns out, other stand-up comedians, like new stand-up comedians, also had volunteered as ushers. So I m instantly just met some people, and they were all really pro on taking this comedy workshop, stand-up workshop, that it was run by a guy in Austin named Sam. He actually still runs them, and it was... Austin, Texas. Yeah, but he would come to other cities and run these workshops. Yeah, well, people didn't know him. 
where people didn't know him, <laughs> and he would come and make some money. And I, I think he used to book a club in Texas at some point, but I actually thought the idea of taking a class was total bullshit. Yeah. Like, I was like, this is something you can't learn, and, yeah, you know, this is someone taking just taking your money. But at the same time, I was intrigued. Yes, right. And it was like a weekend workshop, you know, whatever, two, four-hour days or something like that for $300. That was like a huge amount of money for me. But I, I had this, I launched a plan that I was going to go, and I would sit through the first half and then go to the bathroom and take off before they asked for the check. Oh, wow. Ophira. That was my plan. <laughs> and then I get there, and of course, they're like, no, the check's up front. Like, what are you kidding me? <laughs> we know you people. I love that you're going to scam a scammer. <laughs> Within one second, they're just like, no. Oh, my God. This is the funniest thing. You were, like, going to, like, scam a scam artist, yeah. basically. So I gave them money. Good. And, and he didn't turn out to be a scam artist. He was a wonderful teacher. He was totally a wonderful teacher. You know, and just what everyone needs is, like, you can't, I still believe you can't actually teach stand-up, but you can encourage and guide people I who want to do it. Yeah. If you have the money to take an improv class and you have a great teacher, take it. If you have the yeah. money to take a stand-up class, I do think the structure is, is helpful. And, you, and, and if you're too afraid to, or you don't can't figure out how to do it on your own, it's just a little hop for it. Yeah. So I did it. And had no material. A lot of other people actually had material, like they had been working on it. But I was just totally like, oh, you know. So I like told some story from my, you know, family or something. It was bad. It was bad. Uh, but he was like, yeah, you know, he could see. I called brave idiot syndrome because you're just so excited yes. to be there yes. that it's there is a, something compelling about that. Just how ha I think I was so happy to be on that stage and excited. But I think what was coming, I know what was coming out of my mouth was. You know, not fit for entertaining. <laughs> I love. Well, first of all, I love that you're so modest, but but I I also that you just were hooked. Yeah, I just wanted it so badly, and he was like, "Okay, you're going to do the showcase the next night." Which you know, in retrospect, there was always going to be a showcase. Everyone was going to do a showcase. It didn't matter who you were; you would do the showcase. Yes. But I thought it meant something. Yeah. No, you read into it, and and it's a positive delusion is a positive thing. Totally. Oh God, I love delusion. I wish I had more of it. You have uh, enough of it if you're doing this. That's <laughs> true. That is true. <laughs> so I, I went. I called in sick for Kinkos. Okay. So I had a shift. So I called in sick and I did it for the first time. And you know, they they the whole same thing. Invite all your friends. Blah blah blah. Yes. These uh, bringer shows. Yeah, but you know, they that word I didn't even hear till I moved to New York. So they would just be like, invite all your friends. Wait. And Vancouver had one club and a pretty solid following. People would just go. Isn't that nice? And so it was bring your friends to support you versus bring your friends or we won't give you stage time. Yeah, I'd never heard oh, about that before thing. I came to New okay. York. I'd never heard of that. That's wonderful. I wanna, We can talk about that another I think time. it's changed, yeah. obviously, and maybe it's changing back again. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I hadn't heard about that before. I sound so sinister only because I come from New York clubs. Well, of knowing. course, but how would, and I didn't know it worked the other way, so I came here and I was totally like, what do you mean? Yes. I mean, I didn't you understand need to bring it. 20 people, they should spend $40 each. And yeah, we'll and you get you three minutes. minutes. <laughs> Exactly. By the way, the show's Saturday at 4 p.m. <laughs> so uh, that was like always a big marker when I first started doing stand-up here. I, someone would be like, yeah, I play Caroline's. And I'd be like, really? What time? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what time is your show? I mean, absolutely. So anyways, I did that. It was like a, I don't know, shot of heroin. I've never done heroin. Uh, something. And I really really like and part of it was doing something you always wanted to do like there was just the natural elation of 
stage. Yes. The drug of that, the thrill of, you know, sort of jumping out of a moving plane kind of feeling, <laughs> like all of that, your body chemistry just goes nuts. Do you, do you remember the first time you said something that you were like, oh, that is really funny? No, but I do remember the first time I wrote a joke. Oh, okay. And it was a long time later. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you were like getting comfortable on stage and just talking. Yeah, yeah, and I, I didn't understand what would get, I, when I got a laugh, I didn't know why. I had no idea why. I was like, is that because it's, is that the way I said it? Like, I didn't really understand it. So interesting because now that I know you, I didn't know you then and I know you now, and looking at your stand-up and storytelling, you're such a good storyteller and stand-up. And so what it seems is like you learned the technical skills, like the kind of things you were learning in that class, you learned on stage too. And then you go back to your roots. I did everything backwards. Yeah. I, people came in with these beautifully written jokes, and I honestly did not know how they did it. It was yeah. so, it was so insurmountable to me. But I just, I mean, really, I, the original title for Screw Everyone before we made it into really just focusing on the relationships, I wanted to call it Points for Trying. <laughs> but that'll be your next book. Because <laughs> it was all about, like, I mean, that is... I that is the one thing I have is that I'll just try the shit out of something. Yeah, but that and that's it. But that is the real way that one learns how to become a comedian. I mean, it's just slow. It's maybe. Sl- oh, but for it's me, slow. you know, someone like Aziz Ansari, I can see why that person succeeded right away, and I can see all the steps that were there so that that person was ready to yeah. move forward. And in my own life, I couldn't have been more a mess. And I couldn't have been more confused and slower in the process. And now I write and host this show and do voices because I couldn't go to the next level in stand-up. Well, but I know what it is. I know what it requires. Yeah, stand-up's near impossible, I think. <laughs> I think it's near impossible. Uh, and, and tr- I mean, there is, there's just people that are good out of the gate. And I'm, I've always been very envious of those people. I knew them in Vancouver. It took me a very long time to admit that I wanted to do stand-up, so I really was, like, back and forth with it. Absolutely. In my heart, I identify <laughs> as one, too. I mean, I, I feel an affinity yeah. towards other stand-up comedians more than I do towards improv comedians who seem much more emotionally well-balanced. I always say that... Um, and happy, because, oh, my God, I did yeah. an improv show where it was, like, a, they wanted someone to tell a story. Um, I did that Ask Cat. Yes, so yes. You, you get to rip, you get to tell a story, yes, and then they, I love it. And at bef- UCB, yeah. but the, before the show, they're all they're all like hugging and high fiving, like good show. I was like, this is amazing. I know they all <laughs> like each other. They pet each other. I think they do each other's hair. They- it's like <laughs> I always say that that um, stand up comedians weren't loved enough by their parents, and improv comedians were loved a little too much. Right, right, right. <laughs> and the perfect thing is both. Both disciplines perpetuate that pattern. Yes. Like, so you go, all right, so you get into stand-up thinking, no, I'll just throw myself and, and beg for the adoration of Absolutely. all these strangers. Yes. And it's like, no, because nine times out of ten, you're going to get those strangers going, you suck. Yes, I mean, really so. demoralizing. You might as well sit in front of a bus. I think you should basically, if you want to go into stand-up, like, just go into rush hour traffic and just stand there. See how you like it. Yeah, and see, see how, how you like it. And if you're happy there, then stay out there. Yeah. No, someone, uh, I was actually emailing with someone who just started stand-up, and they, they sent me something about, like, oh, just want to let you know, last night it, I was at, like, a, a, it was a show at a Mexican restaurant. This was in Boston. They're, like, a Mexican restaurant where 
you know, I'm in front of the taco bar, and there was five people in the audience, and That's the MC was like show. was heckling me. Oh, nice! And uh, <laughs> and they were like, "What you know? What is that about?" And I was like, "Welcome to stand-up comedy. <laughs> like, only two hundred more of those kinds of shows." <laughs> I always used to say I felt violated, but no, nothing had happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You just leave and you rethink everything, and you're like, "Why am I putting stock in that?" Oh, it's amazing. But it's important. Yeah, it always. How, how did you segue then from that to the storytelling world um, and to a very erudite section of it, the moth? Yeah, that was just l lucky. But you know, it was the moth was just. A, I think when I came to the moth, it was at Nanirikan. Yeah, was their venue a, a smaller venue, right? Smaller Which on the venue. Lower east side, and uh, bitter end. And bitter end. But but how did like when did you say I'm going to go from stand up to storytelling? I didn't actually. I made friends with a couple people that took. They were like, "Do you know the moth?" And I was like, "I don't like moths." Like <laughs> I was such an idiot. <laughs> They're like, "No, the moth." Like you know, oh. <laughs> totally. You know, that's a cool thing. I'm not blah, into blah, blah. like just just generally pests in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would you want that? But I also, I mean, there was a couple things happening at the same time. I. The, the route that I thought would be cool uh, when I moved here and started doing stand-up, I was like, oh, one-person show. Like, that was a really big deal. A yes. lot of people were doing one-person shows. And most women in this business, now men do it, but most yeah. women in the business, that was the only way you get ahead because women like yourself, um, coming as a younger stand-up, it would you would get your freaking premium blend, your one shot at Comedy Central before you have a real half hour, so much later than the boys. It would take forever. Forever, and it was. That's I mean, why I pulled. I was like, this is a no win situation for me. This is why I pulled out of stand up. I was like, I'm not going to wait 15 years to get what my peer got. You know, in a day. Years. I know. I know. I, I absolutely agree. And at the time too, like they had, there was a whole bunch of venues that were supporting that. There was the West Beth Theater. I, I, yes, which I is mean, phenomenal. I think the day I arrived here, I saw Mark Maron's Jerusalem Syndrome yes, or whatever. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Like he was doing a one man show. Uh, there was. Uh, that PSNBC space. Yes, oh my gosh, yeah. So there was all these spaces, and a lot of them, there was Freaks Local, where Sarah Silverman was doing her one-person yes. show. A lot of people were doing one. It's now that's gone yeah. in a weird way because we've replaced it with short format, which is storytelling shows. Right, I see. So, but I took a, um, I went and took a workshop. Kirsten Ames ran a uh -huh, um, uh -huh. one-person show workshop, and I took that, and I was writing and thinking about that. I mean, it, I did a one-person show, but it was a, just a very small thing I did years later. Uh, but that, all, and then I met some people there. They were like the moth, and I didn't know what it was. I went to the moth, and I thought it was the most frightening amazing yeah. thing ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I love, I, now I do storytelling and I just love it so yeah, much. Yeah, but you got to admit, what it is is like people go, it's, I don't think they meant it this way, but what it, the cultural phenomena of, of the moth also has to do that with, people really d did like those one person show, those solo voices yes. that we had, but that genre, it, I guess it was a big investment and people were like, no, I don't want to take a chance. I'll see the best ones, but I don't want to take a chance. So now we're giving it to them in yeah. five, ten minute. Yes, I mean the only thing tastes. I don't love is when the slams are so short. But I yeah. understand if the story's not good, but it's hard to really create a story. Absolutely, in, in such yeah, a it's, time. it's it's totally a different technique, right? Because yeah. you just have to use a little tiny inch square of your story rather than really the whole thing. Give the whole thing. So I went up once. Uh, didn't do particularly well. I think my scores were terrible. Yeah. I don't think my, st you know, but whatever. I had, I had some stage uh, chops. What, what I should say for people who don't know, so at the slams, you get graded. And 
it's not people that in you, the audience. It's not that your rape wasn't an important. If that's <laughs> what your story is about, but it's how you told the story about it. And it is a, still a subjective system. I mean, they're the people who are grading it. You know, they may like someone who's very funny that night, and another yeah, it doesn't they may matter. Like who's really sad. So you have to take those grades with a grain of salt and just try again the next time. Totally. So uh, did it didn't do so well. But Jennifer Hickson, who is the producer of the Slams, yes, she is. I mean, she is a moth mother to so many people. Yeah, and she encouraged me to come back and try again and blah 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 and I god I don't know if anyone's ever encouraged me I really felt like that was the first time well, anyone had ever encouraged me to do anything but that speaks so, so much to you and to her because I have this thing about gateway people in New York and, and I know they exist everywhere yeah but I would feel so sad when I would get put down by gateway people and it happens still Oh, you know, God, yeah. I, I sent um, this animated short that I did to an executive at a network here, and he called my manager to say, oh, Katie shouldn't let me know about this. And it was just like, just tell me to my face that you don't want to see my short or whatever. You know, but on a larger scale, I thought, I will never interact with this person again. My point is to get around you. Yes. It took me a long time to get inside, like, oh, that person has never moved on in their career. They are still at that gateway position. Oh, yeah, I never really thought of it like that. That's good. So it's not just us who are sort of frozen. They are, too. So maybe that's not the right person to be looking to for advice right. on your on your career if they themselves haven't moved forward in their own. Right, and their job mostly is to say no. To say no. I'm very good at saying no, but I actually don't. I personally haven't actually found stars. I'm just good at, at um, you know, making sure that certain people don't try again. And sometimes they're right. Yeah, sometimes you know? they're right, sometimes they're wrong. No, it's such... Uh, can I open this? It's yes, you be weird. please have the RNCita. Thank you. Um, and anyways, the moth, the, it's mostly women who run it. George Dawes, Dawes Green started it. Yeah. But, but they are very intelligent women um, and, and lovely. What I have noticed, though, is that they have absolutely nurtured, and I mean really nurtured the careers in a creative way, of the storytellers that they like. So, like, Dan Kennedy, Mike Daisy... Um, Jonathan Ames, Andy Borowitz, David Crabb, Adam Wade, Brian Finkelstein. I mean, these people, they've really helped nurture them. And so I was elated um, because you are the first female that I knew that they really also um, promoted as well. Oh, I never really thought about it like that. But, yeah, thanks. Well, because uh, they think you're a great storyteller, and they don't say, oh, she's also a great female storyteller. And, you know, and there was a um, – it took a while, uh, too, because – the funny thing about doing stand-up is that basically anyone who, like the moth was like, you know, they are so trying to make sure people don't do stand-up. So yes. I felt like they they were a little worried about me for a while because they didn't want me to bring my stand-up voice. But I was so happy not to bring my stand-up voice. Even though people do funny stuff there all the time. But, you know, it's such a different form. I, yes. And I was not interested in pretending that was a stage for me to also do stand-up. Yeah, I, I, you're you're naked there in a real vulnerable way. And that's, like, so fun. Yes, In yes. its own little way. Yeah, you're not and hiding behind and blah, blah, blah. jokes. You're, yeah. you're, you're presenting. But you have now made a living off telling real stories. I mean, and it's in print as well now. Well, I don't know if I ever made a living telling stories. <laughs> but I did, I certainly, uh, yeah, I worked very long and hard on that book. And it, obviously I went through, uh, I went through three agents and many incarnations. And fi- finally, actually f- through the moth, found an agent who I connected with. 
I, I cannot recommend Screw Everyone enough. It is so funny, and uh, your your ability to tell stories on stage comes out in your writing. It really feels like you're speaking them. Oh, that's good. It's such Thank an God. easy read, and I say that, look, when I was starting out, Ophira and another comedian had a show they never put me on. I do not need <laughs> to recommend these people. <laughs> recommend what them show? because I admire them. Sweet Peppery. Oh my God. Sweet Never. Well. But you know what? We don't I... have to <laughs> talk about that off, off uh, tape. But I say this as like I'm, I wanted to put that out there because I'm recommending this because I enjoy your writing so much. I mean I genuinely do. Meaning oh, I, didn't, nice. I didn't need to say that. that no, no, no. So good. It really is. Um, and not, not all of uh, comedians books are because it's, it's hard to, it's a different form. It's a different It's a format. very different form. I thought it was one of the hard, you write a lot. Uh, I find it super difficult. So painful. I, I know why people are alcoholics. Oh, yeah. It's so <laughs> lonely. It's so lonely. It's lonely. Once you get in it, you're okay, but it's fleeting. Yes. Uh, there's, like, no gauge. I mean, I, th I find it very hard. It's very gratifying on some level, but, man, it really... Uh... The print is nice for mortality. When you have a great show for, for yes. stand-up and even storytelling, you know, it's over. And then you, you say, I had a great show last night, and you carry that feeling with you. But yes. even that, uh, you know, years pass and you, you have to remember that feeling because otherwise you don't have anything else Although you have a great show and you go, that was a great show, and you walk away and you don't have to hear other people on Amazon Amazon oh, chime yes. in and be like, really, you thought you had a good show? One star! <laughs> One star! <laughs> and then the person's, like, name is, like, S-O-S. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. One star. <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah. Meh. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. And S-O-S stands for your ex-boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe. You mentioned that you didn't, you don't feel you make a, uh, uh, you've never made a living from story, from telling stories. Well, it depends what you consider a living. Well, <laughs> that is one thing. What do you say on your taxes? IT professional? Yeah, I should. Because <laughs> uh, you yeah. do, you are an IT professional. As a, didn't you moonlight as that for a while? I certainly did. Yeah. yeah, I never got any formal training, or I don't have any uh, accred accreditation or. I don't know, diploma, this certificate. This is how I feel about most IT professionals. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I certainly worked in it professionally. Yeah. Ha ha, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> I fixed your computers and went through your email and you thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Hilarious. I just Googled stuff. <laughs> um, but so, well, it took a long time to, I was, yeah, I mean, I made some money off doing live shows, but, you know, it's not, not like, I've never made six figures or anything doing not yet live shows. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. You'll see. <laughs> um, but the storytelling thing is such a. I mean, it's just growing right now. I hope it. I'm worried about it, frankly. How come? Because there's so many. It's there's such an interest in it, and there's so many shows. Yes. Uh, and there's so many people doing, it, which is good. But I just don't want it to turn into. Like the bringers, like, all right, Absolutely. do a storytelling show in New York. You need to bring five people because Absolutely. the market's oversaturated. I mean, these are many of the reasons I left stand-up. I felt, you know, I'm going to go against what I was saying before, which is oh, whenever I make a generalization, I then have to go across it. Instead of yelling at the gatekeepers for, for not letting all these talented people in who deserved a chance. Um, yeah, there, there are so many people who, who stick at things when it may not be the right thing for them, or if you're doing this professionally, you're doing this with people who aren't doing it professionally. So it's such a, it's a mess, and then you forget at the bottom end of it, like the clubs are just trying to, you know, sell enough beer so they can yes. pay their rent, and yes. they don't care. I mean, they care. No, they Some don't. of them care, yeah. but most of them don't care. Very few of them. Like, they're, they're very interested in, if you have a great television career, you know, that's, they want you. For yes. sure, because you're just a, it's, 
it's all what you think it is. Yeah. It's nothing about it is like a little artistic, warm. Right. It's a business. It's a business. Business. And when I first moved here with the Bringer shows, my first show was at Boston Comedy Club, yes, which is I totally long remember. gone, oh, gosh, yes. right? Yeah, but I remember. And I that. called, I, I think I spoke to, God, who was running the show? Mm, Dwayne, not sure. Dwayne Rada? No. No. I can't remember. I can't remember it. But anyways, I was told that I needed to bring five people. I had just moved to New York. I didn't know five people, but I was working at a clothing store as a sales girl. Uh, it was, it, it's now gone. What was that called? Well, I was working at my friend's store called Meg. Okay. Oh, very Street. fancy. And then there was another clothing store. Do you know store. Meg? Yes, we oh. went to school together. We went to elementary school do you together. Get discounts? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> How much discount do you get? Uh, we'll talk about that later. Okay. It really depends. <laughs> but That's a very uh, fancy boutique. I just yelled at everyone in the store all day, asking if they wanted. Like, I who knew that I was preparing myself for life of barking on the street? Yes, I see. But I see by working at this. That's I yelled so funny. to everyone. I was like, I need five people to come see me do stand up tonight, at Boston Comedy Club. Three people agreed. That's amazing. One of them, strangely, being this lovely woman who lives in uh, uh, just outside of. Pasadena or in LA, who ended up, who was in New York for a year, hanging out with her cousin, Liz Winstead. Well, that's unbelievable. Totally bizarre. Liz Winstead, for people who don't know, is a phenomenal comedian who also um, co created The Daily Show. Right, and she's got a book out right now, which is very funny, called Liz Free and Die. Yes. Great. Yes. So she came to my show. I wrangled two more people to come, got to the Boston Comedy Club, no idea how this worked. Uh, my three people sat down. I said, hey, couldn't get five people, but I've got three people. And the, whoever was running it said, you're not going on. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you only go on if five people show up. And I could not believe it. I started panicking yes, that I yes. like talked these people into this. And now, yes. like, I didn't know what to do. My oh, little so Canadian obnoxious. brain was exploding. So I said to the guy, all right, maybe two people will come a little later. He goes, fine, we'll put you on near the end of the show. And I stood by that little front section where they mark people in and waited for him to leave and then mark people beside my name. And he was like, oh, your five people showed up. You can go on. And I was like, yep. And then I failed. But (laughs) I I bombed. I know, but it's such a a disconcerting (laughs) experience waiting. Then I bombed on stage. (laughs) All that effort. You finally get there. Bomb. We're probably comic number 973. I once um, got almost punched at the comedy cellar by someone and then was so happy to be performing with them at the Boston Comedy Club because I did well that night, I mean, which is very rare for me, as you know. And so it was so thrilling because I was like, oh, that's the best thing was for him to see me succeed. Um, how, yeah. did you, how did you get into to Ask Me Another, to, to host the show on NPR? Oh, my God. Not from the Boston I Comedy Club. never know. <laughs> but in a strange way, it was a long journey that did start there. <laughs> in a strange way. But I love that you bridge these <laughs> two worlds. I, you know, Ask Me Another, I, I've never, twice in my life, and it was not in America, in Canada, have I actually done well enough <laughs> in an audition to get something? Twice! Oh, yeah. Never well, in America. Like <laughs> the first time. I was brought in to audition. How, do you think they saw you at the mall? No. Nope. Actually, they didn't see me anywhere. Uh, Paul Ruest, who does the sound for the Moth and the Moth podcast, recommended me because he was doing Fabulous. their sound. Fabulous. And they were like, who? 
And I always love them saying this. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, them always try to be very complimentary, but it always makes me feel bad. They're like, and then you came in, and we had seen every comedian. We had in, seen our cleaners, everyone. We found like, we everyone seen, before you. Yes, yes. We were looking. We, we saw every comedian, like all the A-list comedians and blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like, but clearly my name had never come up before. Totally. <laughs> it makes you feel that I, I was never called in. I may be the only person you know who was not called in. Your mother was actually telephoned <laughs> to see if she was available. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she was like, I could be, but, uh, you know, I need more money. So, yeah, so I did, uh, I did the, and it was, you know, it's just the way the life goes. I will look back at this and think it's so funny because it was one of the few auditions I've ever done where I just kind of walked in and for the first time ever was just sort of like, I don't know, this just doesn't seem that hard to me. So, whatever. But I also laughed because I walked into the NPR bureau and I was like, oh, radio, public radio is so cool. <laughs> and then there was like the dying plants on the radiator and Tupperware containers. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot public radio. This is what it's like. It's hilarious. You managed to co conquer all these dying markets. <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. One at a time. Now that you've succeeded in, in stand-up storytelling in public radio, now that you've found ways to be at the top of businesses that don't make a lot I would money. really like to do like a please, please give us money donor th pledge. Yeah. Standing in front of those dying plants, uh, I yes. think nothing says it more than right. like these dying plants <laughs> need miracle grow. <laughs> but that is five dollars a bottle. Please send it to us. Yeah. So I did. And the, please send the water bottle. So yeah, exactly. We need a lot. So yeah, I did the audition. They called me back. I could tell that they were like, this is a big risk. <laughs> Yes. the whole way that I because like they kept questioning me in weird ways that I was like did I like is there something weird on my record right right <laughs> do I not know that I committed a crime <laughs> what's going on here did I kill someone huh <laughs> yeah so uh but then they, they offered me the job and then you know well, they was, had gone through two women they'd gone through a couple women that they just felt who were br both brilliant yeah uh but they they just thought they were just trying to figure it out still uh, and then whatever they're like, okay, we'll try you. They have very few uh, young hosts to begin with. I know it's the first time <laughs> in a long time I'm considered young. <laughs> awesome. So to begin with, they have very few. And then I always find the subtle sexism because I come from the culture of NPR and, and things like that. So I always find it funny. The I don't know what to call it, erudite sexism versus the the you know the stand-ups. Right, right. You know, the ones who are supposed to be so schmacky to me. Uh, once they realized I wasn't going to have sex with them were really nice to me and the ones who, sh <laughs> who went to Brown and Wesleyan and Harvard and Yale and grew up the same way I did were actually still sexist. Right. You know, I was never going to make it as a writer on The Daily Show and I couldn't quite pin it and then I figured out why and I, I, it's just interesting because I, I do see that with, I'm sure it comes out very subtly with NPR as well. Well, you know, there is nothing more risky than a woman hosting a trivia show. Yes. That blows people's minds. Yes. Like who knew that would be like, whoa. Right. But trivia, you know, although it's nerdy trivia and clever, blah, 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 but trivia is a really guy thing. It just is. And that's part of the reason why they decided they wanted a female host because they didn't, they wanted to, you know, have some different voices up nice. there. Nice, great. So that was like a real cool thing that they decided. And I think from the point of view of a listening audience, it's good to have some differentiation in the voices. And they have quiz shows already that are all led by men. So yes. switch it up. But it's, it's hard on people. 
Yes. It's hard on people. Did, and did people respond to you being alone? Did listeners and things like that? They were yeah, surprised. I try not to look so much at the responses, but so far it's it's go- good. Some people hate it. Some people hate it. They just hate it. Do you compartmentalize? I just don't look anymore at it's so it's too bad because I actually can't handle it. I sit there and think about it and think about it and think about it, uh, and clearly I just never got a thick enough skin. Oh, but so, I think it's build. It's a process. Yeah, so I'm just like one day, one day, you know, I'll look at them. But just like people, someone right in the beginning was like, "My husband hates her voice." I thought that was one of the most interesting comments of all time. Yes. A woman is writing in on behalf of her husband yes, he, he, to say that he dislikes my voice. Well, he's spending so much, explaining so much energy <laughs> disliking a stranger that he can't type it in himself. Yeah, another woman is like, by the way, woman, my husband doesn't like your woman voice. <laughs> he's cool with mine. Well, so, okay, so people can see you on, on Ask Me Another. I really just want to encourage again everyone to please go out and get Screw Everyone. Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. It's $9 on Amazon. It's not a lot of money. I think it's $9.12. Excuse me. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, and it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's going to be coming to you soon. And you can also, so you can hear Ophira and ask me another, but you can also go see her uh, perform stand-up. And at the Moth, she hosts um, the Storytelling Slams. Yeah. Every third Thursday. You can also go to OphiraEisenberg.com, her website. Ophira, I am so grateful to have you on the show. This was such a treat. Thank you. You're a treat. I feel like we kind of worked out some stuff together. This was super fun. Well, I mean, see, We're like, you know what's wrong with stand-up? <laughs> I know! <laughs> but that is the, the show true. is all about That's work. True. Yeah, like, yeah, trying totally. Trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's all impossible. <laughs> Call me when you figured everything out, okay? Yeah, please let me know if you have any ideas. Post them on my wall. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com. You can nominate people. You can give me feedback about the interviews, what you liked, didn't like, people you'd like to hear from. Again, this show is about jobs, work, and culture. So trying to get a sense of how people spend their time, what they do with it. We really only, we meaning me, like to only interview interesting, good eggs. The good part meaning that they have a moral compass. I probably will not take someone if they're a dictator or a parking ticket officer, but anyone else who has a really interesting job or career, please feel free to uh, let us know about them. Please donate if you have money. We could really use your help. It makes the sound quality that much better. It helps pay for people. And even me, I could afford to have three meals in a day instead of combining. That would be a delight. I really want to thank Ian Mazoff for being just a wonderful partner in crime, as well as all of you for listening. Thank you so, so much. And how did I not thank Lady Parts? Thank you, Lady, for being the best co-host a host could ever have. I'm Katie Lazarus. Be well.